The first commandment says, thou shalt not have any gods before me. And if you think about the things people are living for, they have placed all kinds of things. If they were honest, they have placed all kinds of things ahead of God in their lives. In fact, I dare say we have violated it. All of us here violated that first commandment. And I believe the day will come when people will stand before their Creator and say, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? We have a great God. The Bible says He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son to die for our sins. Let's serve Him with all our heart. Let's not allow any sad substitutes for our Savior. Amen. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, at this time and turn to the Gospel of Mark and the fifth chapter. Mark chapter 5 means we've made it through one-fourth of the Gospel of Mark as we're studying it verse by verse, following the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. I call them uh, unerasable footsteps. I mean, 2,000 years later, he's still impacting this world because he lived the greatest life ever lived. We're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 5 and verse 1, reading down through verse 20. It says, And they came over into the side of the sea, unto the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces." Neither could any man tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him, and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about two thousand and were choked in the sea. And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that was done. And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. And when he was coming to the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed, and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. 
I want you to note verse number 17. It says of the townspeople that they began to pray or ask him, Jesus, to depart out of their coasts. In other words, they chose the swine over the Savior. I'd like to talk today about sad substitutes for the Savior. Sad substitutes for the Savior. Let's pray before we begin. Now, our Heavenly Father, we come before Thee at this time. We ask You for help to listen. And Father, help us to get the principles and the precepts from this passage. Help us, Lord, to make an application to our lives. Father, certainly in this text, there's something for everybody. So may we listen with all our hearts and may You speak to us. We pray now and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The place was the region of Denver. What is Denver, Colorado today? The time was about 1880, many years ago. There was a very wealthy miner, the owner of the matchless mine around Cripple Creek in the Denver area, and his name was was Horace Tabor. And Horace had a wife by the name of Augusta, and they were happily married and very, very wealthy. One day there was a blue-eyed, blonde-haired gal who moved to the area, and her name was, well, she was known as, as Baby Doe. And Elizabeth Doe was beautiful, and she was a divorcee, and and she uh, immediately caught the eye of Horace, and a scandal followed. Uh, Horace left his wife, Augusta, having an affair with, with baby Doe, and, and soon divorced her. And by 1883, everything was in place for uh, this, this very lavish, wealthy lifestyle to be lived by Horace and, and baby Doe Tabor. They lived in this huge mansion. They feasted on champagne and caviar, and baby Doe wore... A satin and silk continually, and thought it would always be this way and, until the Sherman Act was repealed by the Congress, and suddenly the, the price of silver dropped, and it didn't even pay to mine it anymore. Horace had made some poor investments and actually had not diversified in his investments and overnight lost everything. They were penniless. And they actually got so desperate at times over the next few years where they had to beg for food from their friends. And Horace was often seen shoveling amongst the, the mines there in the Cripple Creek area, trying to scrape together whatever kind of a living he could, until he finally died of a, a appendicitis. Before he died, he brought Baby Doe aside, according to the legend, and, and said, whatever you do, don't give up on the matchless mine. It'll produce for you one day. And so for the next 35 years, Baby Doe, day after day, went out into the mine, living in the shack where they had formerly stored the tools and, and tried to eke out some kind of a living finding silver or gold there. She was found one morning, a cold snowy morning in the Denver area, uh, lifeless and frozen to death, wearing gunny sacks around her feet and, and having a man's cap on her head and, and an old tattered black jacket which she stuffed newspapers into to try and uh, keep herself warm. And for those 35 years she had worked that mine and come up with nothing except a few cans of food that they found within the old shack there. You know, she traded her life for nothing. And she put her hope, if you will, in the wrong thing. And as we hear about that, we think of how people even today exchange God for the wrong things. Uh, we live in a world where, where uh, entertainment is king and, and uh, sex is king and, and people are pursuing careers and degrees and money and sports and TV and the internet and all kinds of things that they're putting a, ahead of God. And we can laugh at a Judas who traded the Lord Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver and yet we have a society today that is doing the exact same 
thing. The first commandment says, Thou shalt not have any gods before me. And if you think about the things people are living for, they have placed all kinds of things. If they were honest, they have placed all kinds of things ahead of God in their lives. In fact, I dare say we have violated it. All of us here have violated that first commandment. And I believe the day will come when people will stand before their Creator and say, What was I thinking? What was I thinking? We take you to the scene of uh, the region of Gadara. If you'll look behind me here, you'll notice a map of the Holy Land back in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll see this region here, actually kind of a, a greenish color, called Decapolis. And you'll find this word right here called Gadara. And Gadara seems like it's a long ways from the Sea of Galilee where our scene takes place today. But that was known as the region of Gadara, all of this. And where this demoniac was living was right around that dot on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee here. A lesson takes place in this, and it's a lesson we all need to remember, about sad substitutes for the Savior. As we look at this passage, we see what I call, first of all, the desperate situation. It is a desperate situation. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ had cast out a lot of devils. And there were some nasty devils here, no question about that. But I think the most dramatic of all of them, the most noted of all of them, has to be the demoniac of Gadara. It's an incredible story because the situation is so desperate here. We pick it up in verse number 1 of chapter 5 here in the Gospel of Mark. It says, And they came over unto the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs and no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces. Neither could any man tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. Now, the disciples had faced that storm at sea, and we saw it last time, where they said, what manner of man is this, that even the winds and the waves obey him? It was exhilarating. It was exhausting. And now they arrive on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee here, and they think maybe this roller coaster ride they're on with the Lord Jesus Christ will settle down a little bit. But it was not to be. They're met with this, this raging lunatic running down, screaming from the hills, attacking their boat. No sooner had they landed when, oh no, here it is again. It's kind of like, oh great, you know, this rude Nude, dude, in a crude mood. Amen? We find behind me here a map once again of that region, the Sea of Galilee. And, and here's uh, Gergesa. This is where Christ heals the demoniac. Again, Gadara's down here. This is all the region of Decapolis. This is where he'd calmed the storm as they're crossing the sea. And they arrived there on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in the village of what is known today as Cursa. Cursa. And it's the country or the region of the Gadarenes. And note here, if, if home base is Capernaum up here, this is about six miles away by, by land there. Sea of Galilee is not really a sea. It's a freshwater lake, and it's not really that big. But when, when the apostles and the Lord Jesus Christ arrive here, they find a desperate situation. Uh, here's this, this demon-possessed man who meets them there. By the way, may I say to you, we don't, we don't see a lot of violent demonic possession here stateside with, 
where we live. But I'm telling you, it's very, very common in third world countries. I mean, it's common here. It's just a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit more cultured. But you get over into some third world countries. I know of a preacher and a missionary, and it might have been the Philippines, I don't remember. But he said there was a, a little girl in his village that was continually complaining about being bitten by something. And, and, and you couldn't see anything biting her, but when, when uh, she finished with, with the screaming, they'd look at her arm and there were teeth marks in her arm and little pieces of hair and saliva. And it was like, what in the world is this? Folks, we have, uh, I guess, a phenomena in this world called demonic possession, and we really don't address it. How do people get in that kind of condition? What is it that makes them vulnerable and overtaken by demons? Well, drugs make you obviously vulnerable for demonic possession, the uh, occult, messing with occultic things, would make you vulnerable. May I say even religion. Religion has uh, so taken in some people that the devil controls them now and they don't even know that. It's common. Controlled by uh, what we know to be a fallen angel. One of the original angels in heaven who had fallen. And, and now indwells the victim. Now, the devil's continually working generically and, and overall throughout this world, overall in our society through lies, through uh, false philosophy, through false education, uh, in the political arena, through uh, corruption, even religious-wise, the devil is working overall generally. And, and 1 Timothy 4, 1 says that in the latter times, some should apart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits. Notice this and doctrines of devils. There are doctrines of devils out there, religiously speaking. There, there's things being taught from pulpits like this that are not of God at, at all. They are the doctrines of devils, and the devil is the master deceiver, and we have a society that is clueless about all these philosophies that they're talking about. You, you see the talking heads at night, and I don't, I don't spend any time watching them, but if I'm in a restaurant and they're on, I listen to them and I roll my eyes here as they go back and forth debating about stuff that is wrong. And James 3.15 says, This wisdom, so-called, descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. The devil is behind a lot of this philosophy. The master deceiver is working generally and overall. But more specifically, he is working in individuals with intense activity, indwelling them, taking them over, controlling their, their mind, controlling their body, even their voice. Even their voice. I've heard them. And, and medical science wonders, what is going on? We can't do anything to help this person. And even the criminal justice system wonders, what is going on here? I'm thinking of an individual that I knew years ago who had been a, a drug dealer in Vietnam and actually had, had killed what they call a mama sung over there, drug her into the, the jungle and put a bullet into her and said, from that moment on, something overtook me. And I don't have time to tell you about it. It was awful. And I don't want to cause fear and I don't want you to focus on it. And in fact, the Bible says this in 1 John 4, 4, that you're of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I simply want to make the point, demonic possession is a very real thing. Now, we find here from verse number 3, this man made his abode in the tombs. 
And, and there's something weird about somebody who, want, who wants to live amongst the dead or somebody who has a fetish about the dead, but we have that stuff going on today. You know, they've exca- excavated, by the way, uh, tombs in that region of Gersha, which may have been the very same tombs, and they, they weren't graves like we would have them, but actually horizontally cr- carved out of the rocks where they would bury a body and they would seal up that, that hole there. But we find out also something about this guy in Luke 8.27 where it says there met him, Jesus, out of the city, a certain man, which had devils long time and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs. Not only is it weird to, to, to inhabit the area of the dead, but this man's naked. There is something, let me just say, about our society currently taking place, an obsession with undressing. This nakedness here, and you say, who is behind all this? Well, who is behind the demoniac? You know, Adam and Eve sinned and fell, and and the first thing God did, their Creator did, was to clothe them and create an environment of modesty. But here's this demoniac, and he's as naked as the pigs. You know, it's one thing for an animal to walk around like that. God never meant for humans to walk around like that. God wants us to be modest. In fact, what is it that causes lust? Lust in men who are attracted by sight. It's immodest women. We find this verse in 1 Timothy 2.9. It says that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. That goes for everybody, but we ought to have modest apparel. You know, the world is continually moving the boundaries. Have you noticed that? And, and really, is anything sacred anymore? And if we as Christian people aren't careful, we're going to follow just a few steps behind them. Is what is in your closet or your drawers at home modest apparel? Is it modest clothing. And who is behind the immodesty? And who is behind the undressing? Why was the demoniac naked here? Well, the devil was behind this. He's demonically possessed. Now, apparently the local residents had tried to incarcerate this man, uh, tried to subdue this man. We read this in verse number four, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, Neither could any man tame him. In other words, he has superhuman strength. And quite often, that's the story with those who are demonically possessed. That fellow I mentioned a moment ago from Vietnam, the, the, the reason I met, uh, met him is he was in the county jail because he had been arrested by the police and there was a 280-pound policeman he had thrown across the room in the condition he was in. You know, superhumanness, if you will, or strength like that comes with demonic possession quite often. We read in Matthew 8.28, this, this guy possessed with devils came out of the tomb exceeding fierce so that no man could pass by that way. He was super strong and he would just pluck the chains and the fetters aside here. And so he sees Jesus and the apostles arrive and thinks to himself, uh, new victims to terrify here. So he comes screaming down the landscape, racing and growling. I'll tell you, if I'd have been in that boat, I'd have, I'd have stayed in it, and I'd have gotten back out to sea here. Now, this is scary stuff. We read in verse number 5, it says of him, always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. So it's a desperate situation. We see the desperate situation. Secondly, we see the demonic supplication. I don't know how this happened, but as he's running down the hill, I picture he's growling, he's screaming, he's menacing. And then he realizes who's coming off that boat. He recognizes the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In verse 6, it says, But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him, and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he, Jesus, asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought, that word means begged him much, that he would not send them away out of the country. There's the demonic supplication. He's pleading. Now there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And the devils besought, there's that word again, begged him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave, and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. Now, as we read this, I'm reminded of why the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world in the first place. And we would say, well, he came to seek and save that which is lost. And that would be true. That's accurate. But I read this over in 1 John 3, 8. It says, the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Why did Christ come into this world to destroy the works of the devil? The devil right now is corrupting our our world. He's usurping uh, his authority. He has sinners in spiritual bondage. But Jesus Christ came to deliver the sinner from all of that. That's the kind of Savior we have. We read way back in Genesis 3.15. It says, And it, that is the seed of the woman, the coming Messiah, shall bruise thy head. God tells the devil, the Messiah is coming, he's going to bruise your head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And many Bible scholars feel that's a reference to the nails being driven into the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't a mortal wound, the head wound was. It was a death blow to the devil. But at the cross, Jesus Christ defeated Satan. You know, for for twenty, nearly 21 years... I thought everything was okay. I I grew up in a mainline denomination. I went to church every Sunday, even attended a religious school. And I thought, I'm not so bad. There's certainly others worse than me. And I had this false assurance. I was, I put it this way, drugged by the devil, like so many others. And on March 5th, 1981, in repentance and faith, I called upon the Lord and was born again the Bible way, unshackled, if you will. And I love this passage. I call it a three-star passage. Colossians 1.12 says that the Father hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. There's so much preaching there. But, but I love this part that the Father hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Thank God for that. The Lord Jesus Christ has power over Satan, and, and the cross isn't the only place where we see him exercise that authority. Remember after fasting for 40 days, how he displayed that power as his ministry began by defeating the devil? And then there's, there's numerous times even after that, there's, there's these demonic encounters taking place, and Christ is coming out on top. He's always on the offense. That's another thing to note here. Because Christian people think we're on the defense and we're kind of cowering in the corner when really we have the battering ram and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the New Testament church. Demons shrieked with terror when the Lord Jesus Christ showed up and immediately He cast them out. Something the Jewish rabbis were not able to do. 
We find a sad but humorous story even over in, I think it's Acts 16 or 17, right in that area, where these, there's these seven preachers, if you will, Jewish rabbis who try and cast out some devils and they end up get, getting whooped in the process. But never the Lord Jesus Christ. In Mark 127, the Bible says of that region, they were all amazed, saying, what thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. The Jewish Pharisees said, well, it's the devil. He's he's using the devil to cast out devils. They're sore losers. But we find here that Back in our text, there's, there's this, this demon-possessed man and the devils within him are begging the Lord Jesus Christ not to send him out into hell. We find, according to verse number 9, the name of them is Legion. Uh, a Roman legion was, was several thousand at that time, anywhere from two to, to four to even 6,000 men made up a legion there. And and we find out that, uh, according to verse number 6, this demoniac sees Christ at a distance, shrieks, but under the control of Christ, is drawn to Him where He ran, notice verse 6, and worshipped Him. The power that created the universe grabbed the demoniac by the nap of the neck and brought Him close to Him. And there's reverence now. There's dread. Because these... These demons are in the sheer presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7 says, They cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. What's going on here? Why are they so afraid? Well, first of all, they knew exactly who they were dealing with. They call him the Son of the Most High. Secondly, they know, they recognize him as their creator. Because according to John 1 and other places, Jesus Christ created everything. That would include these angels before they, they fell. They also recognized Him as the one who had decommissioned them after they had messed up and, and booted them from their lofty place. But they have a, a far greater fear than that. And I don't have time to really get into it too much. But I believe their fear here is that they would be cast into this, this bottomless pit where some other demons were already being held. The, the, the forces of hell are not really in hell right now. We call them that. But most of them are, are, are working the top side of the earth. And their leader is called the prince of the power of the air. This is their territory here. But there are some devils that did something so devilish, if you will, that they, I believe, were cast into hell forever, and they're already there. We read about them in First or Second Peter 2. Verse 4 says, God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. There are some demons that did something so hideous and heinous that God has already put them in chains in the bottomless pit. It mentions that He spared not the angels that sinned. But it's talking here about a specific sin. Jude 1.6 says, The angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he, God, hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Genesis 6, I think, sheds some light on this, and we don't have time to go back there. But we find out that there were some angels, I believe, that, that cohabited, if you will, with the human race, and there's these giants born of them, and I believe the devil was trying to pollute the bloodline so that the Messiah could never come into this world, and that was so wrong 
that God put them in the chains of hell already. In fact, in Revelation 5, it mentions that the bottomless pit is going to be opened during the tribulation period, and these demonic creatures are going to be released where they are going to torment the, the top side of the earth for five months. It may be these very same demons. Interesting Bible study. But back to the demonic supplication here. In verse number 10, it says, He, the, the, the legion here, besought Jesus much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now, there was there nigh or close unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding, and the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave, and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. There were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea here. About 2,000, maybe making up exactly the number of demons here, we don't know, but we find here the extent of the power of demons. They so overcome these pigs here that they, they end up choking the whole bunch, the whole herd, if you will, in the ocean here. They had made a bizarre request, and it was done in desperation, but they didn't want to go into the pit or into the lake of fire just yet, and so they asked to inhabit the pigs. They knew it would be temporarily, and, and once the pigs had, had died, they would go um, inhabit other human beings, victims. By the way, those, still demons, those demons are still around, I believe, most likely. And there are those who are totally under control of the devil, still in this world today. Notice verse 13 tells us that forthwith Jesus gave them leave. That word means permission. Christ gave them permission. May I say that demons can do nothing outside of God's permission. And, and all the devilry that takes place in this, this world is only allowed by God. We find cases even in the Bible where King Saul was, was plagued by a demon that God allowed to plague him. Uh, Job had his, his livelihood destroyed and, and his children lost over demonic activity. And even in the New Testament... Jesus turns to Peter and says, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. And so there are things God commands, there are things God permits. We don't fully understand that, but when they take place, it brings God glory. God is not the author of evil. We know that. In James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Yet, God does have a sovereign plan. And the Bible does tell us in Proverbs 16, 4, that the Lord hath made all things for Himself, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil. You find in current events some wicked people in control, don't you? And you say, well, did God drop the ball there? No, no. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. God's still on His throne. We don't understand it. But in this case, God used the demons, God used the pigs, and 2,000 pigs perished. I thought this last week, it's a good thing PETA wasn't around at that time. You know, the point is this, one man, one man is more valuable than 2,000 pigs. There's some people who have an inordinate affection out there, and they have their priorities messed up. The pig was unclean, and uh, the Jewish people weren't supposed to even uh, eat it. We read in Deuteronomy 14.8, And the swine is unclean unto you, you shall not eat of their flesh. But boy, this whole exhibition here shows the power of demons, doesn't it? 
of fallen angels. By the way, one angel, one of God's angels, was able to wipe out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. You know the story in the Bible. Imagine how powerful an angel is, even a fallen angel here. The Bible again tells us this, though. Year of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We see the desperate situation. We see the demonic supplication. But thirdly, we see the discarded Savior. In verse 14, it says, And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that was done. And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed, notice, and in his right mind. What's that say about the unclothed part? And they were afraid. And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. And they begin to pray or ask him to depart out of their coasts. Now here's the rub. Here's the message. Sad substitutes for the Savior. What's worse? Is it the behavior of this, this naked demoniac? Or is it these upstanding people who once looked down on that demoniac who looked at his plight and poo-pooed it and tisk-tisked it and, and, uh, and, and there they were in all their upstanding culture and behavior and, and uh, thinking they're okay and forthright and honorable. All of a sudden, they're rejecting Christ. So what's worse, the demoniac or the people of the, the region there who rejected the Savior? You know, it, as you see this, this situation take place, you would think they'd have been relieved. Wouldn't that be the word? They come out and they're relieved. You've gotten rid of this menace. You think there would have been gratitude. You think there would have been worship, maybe? Maybe revival? I mean, these are some of the words that come to my mind, but none of that here. These people commit yet the greatest sin possible. They reject the Son of God. They reject the Son of God. They, they, they'd prefer the, the dangerous demoniac over the divine deliverance of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a pity here. And yet there are many people in this world that are doing the exact same thing. Maybe you sit here today and, and you have this list of priorities here, but, uh, but the Lord's not on it. And, and maybe you're not stiff-arming God to the extent to, that you're, you're blaspheming Him and, and condemning Him and rejecting Him, but just by ignoring Him. You find people today so apathetic toward God, so lethargic toward God, so much, uh, so much unbelief. And they are rejecting the evidence that demands a verdict. Is he not the Son of God here? Why does the heart yet remain cold and uncaring when he's done all this here? Why the other priorities? Why is education ahead of Christ? Why is getting a degree ahead of Christ? Why is getting a job and having a career ahead of Christ? Why is making money and buying stuff ahead of Christ? There are people who put sports ahead of Christ and music ahead of Christ and sex ahead of Christ. And a host of other things. Well, not everyone. And that's the good news. There was one. There was one in that region. And there's always a remnant, isn't there? We read this in Isaiah 1.9. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom. Maybe you're part of that small remnant. Thank God for that. Maybe you're on the narrow road instead of the wide road. Thank God for that. Don't substitute anything for the Savior. We've taken a look at the desperate situation, the demonic supplication, the discarded Savior, and finally what I call the dubious saint. 
I mean, you talk about unlikely. <laughs> uh, you talk about doubtful. You talk about, really, this guy's a saint? <laughs> this guy's saved now? This guy's been born again? You know, there were many of that region of Gadara who died and went out into a crisis eternity and went to hell. But there was one, and he would have been voted the most unlikely in his high school class to ever be born again, the demoniac of Gadara who's in heaven even as I speak. In verse number 18, it says, And when he was come into the ship, that is Jesus, he that had been possessed with the devil, prayed or begged him that he might be with him. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. Here's a guy who had lived long enough without Christ in his life, and he was so grateful he just wanted to follow him. Does that ring a bell with you? How long did you live without Christ? And after you got saved, were you so grateful you just wanted to, like, pinch me? I can't believe it. You talk about a guy who's uh, an example of 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. And old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Here's this tormented soul who had been reborn. And he was a new person. And he was eager to forsake all and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that ring a bell with you? Did you feel that way when you got saved? Did you want to follow Christ no matter what? My, my guess, at least, is that after you were saved, you're on fire for the Lord. You were in church. You were talking to others. And you were giving and, and excited. But you know, with so many people, something happens along the way. We read this indictment by the Lord himself in Revelation 2.4 toward a local church. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. That first love, your, your love of him, your love of his church, which, by the way, they go hand in hand. But, but coldness sets in, and apathy sets in, and, and you get lethargic, and you get, you get calloused, and, and church isn't that big a deal anymore. It's not a priority like it used to be. And now there are some sad substitutes for the Savior. May I ask us all, why did God save us in the first place? Was it to hide our light under that bushel that we talked about recently or under that bed? No. It was to put that light on that candlestick and to let it shine in this world and to be a flaming evangelist like this man wanted to be. In verse 19... It says, Howbeit Jesus suffered or allowed him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee. Go evangelize those people you know back there in that region of Decapolis. Instead of coming with me back to Capernaum, stay here in your little corner of the world and evangelize it. By the way, the reason God doesn't take us straight to heaven when we, when we call upon Christ and are born again is because He wants us to evangelize our little corner of the world. Over a third of a century ago, He left me in this area and, and wants me to serve Him here and, and radiate in this region like He does you and to make a difference here. Well, the demoniac, I can just picture it, he reluctantly obeyed. He wanted to follow the Lord, give him credit for that. But the sign of salvation is there that he loved the Lord enough to obey him. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. Do we love the Lord? Are we faithful? Do we obey him? Uh, are we in church? Are we in our Bibles? Are we in prayer? Are we giving? Are we witnessing? Are, are we obedient? Immediately, this guy's obedient. Now, 
We can't poo-poo the demoniac of Gadara or the region of Gadara if we are making substitutes for the Savior ourselves. We have a great God. The Bible says He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son to die for our sins. Let's serve Him with all our heart. Let's not allow any sad substitutes for our Savior. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Puppet Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.